according to the most recent census data, there are 307 million people living in the United States. If you go to Atlanta frequently, you would think most of them live there. Research done by the Barna Group shows that about 83% of Americans label themselves as Christians. If you ask them, are you Christian, they'll say yes. But then if you dig a little deeper, you find some other statistics that are perhaps a a bit more concerning. Of Americans, only 28% attended any kind of church services or activities in the past six months. So that means if we think of America as a Christian nation because 83% say they're Christian, then we take a look at one indicator, and that is being a part of a church even marginally. We see that that number drops from 83 to 28. Now, that doesn't mean that going to church makes you a Christian no more than going to McDonald's makes you a Happy Meal. But it is an indicator of the commitment on behalf of those who call themselves Christians to the local church body. Now, further studies have been done on that 28% number and have discovered that it is probably closer to 18 to 20% rather than 28%. This is an indication that those who consider themselves Christians do not see their connection with a local body of believers to be of very great value in their life. It's not adding anything to their lives. That being a part of a church is an optional thing and perhaps even irrelevant. And if you follow the data through the years, what you see is this concept of church being irrelevant in the lives is actually growing. That as you get younger and younger and younger in generations, what you find out is the commitment to the local church gets less and less and less. Aubrey Malper's writes in his book, Planning Growing Churches for the 21st Century, this, Essentially, what was a churched, supposedly Christian culture has become an unchurched, post-Christian culture. People in our culture are not anti-church. They simply view church as irrelevant to their lives. Thomas and Jess Rayner, who do a lot of research, wrote in their new book, The Millennials, Millennials that is, those born between 1980 and 2000, are not anti-Christian or anti-religion, but they are in general just not interested in religion. An astounding 70% of those millennials agree that American churches are irrelevant today. According to research done by Lifeway, a big majority of the unchurched Americans, that is 79%, think that Christianity today is more about organized religion than about loving God and loving people. With stats like this, it'd be easy for this pastor and for this church and any church to become discouraged. Is it time to throw in the towel? Maybe uh, pack it up and head for monasteries and convents where we can gather with other people who believe like we do and just wait for Jesus to come back, not bothering with the rest of the world since they don't think too much of us. Is the era of the church influencing the culture a bygone era? I don't think so. In fact, I'm convinced that God's plan, God's plan 
unquestionably links his people, his church, to the world being salt and light. That God doesn't have a plan B. We are his plan. And he intends to use you and me gathered together as believers to make a difference in our community, to make a difference in our world. I do not believe the church is irrelevant regardless of the perception, although I do believe that if we keep doing church the way we're doing church, we will find that our culture continues to perceive us as more and more irrelevant. Now, when you start seeing statistics like this, the tendency is to get frustrated. I mean, after all, we've got good news to tell, don't we? We just celebrated that with the Lord's Supper this morning. We know the answer to the deepest need of humanity. We have that answer. And we attempt to proclaim that answer, to teach that answer, to share that answer with a culture that seems more and more uninterested in hearing. So what do we do? We shout louder. I mean, isn't that what you do at home? Children aren't listening? Raise your voice a little bit. Try to get their attention. Of course, at home it doesn't work too well either, does it? It doesn't appear to be working too well in our culture. Trying to penetrate that barrier of irrelevancy that they have set up. Just shouting, just getting in their faces doesn't seem to be working. I want to recommend a better way to you this morning. A way that we can show the world that the church is not irrelevant. That the message we have is real and powerful and can change lives and can change communities and can change the world. And I want to suggest that the way that you and I can reach the world is by serving others. Serving others builds a bridge of trust over which we can communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Serving others, showing them that we love them, showing them that we care, can build that bridge of trust over which we can carry the gospel to a broken world. You know, the old saying is that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I think there's some validity to that saying. We have to show the world authentic Christian love. We have to display the love of God. Put it in our actions. The local church has to demonstrate what we declare. Otherwise, our testimony is going to fall on deaf ears. Last month, we took time to focus on taking our missions to the next level. That is sharing Jesus Christ with our neighbors and with the world, taking that to the next level. What I discovered, I was happy to see it. Remember the blue sheets that some of you filled out last week on the foundational studies that we were interested in? The thing that people most wanted a foundational study about was how to share your faith. And so hopefully very soon, our small group teams can be sharing with you resources that you can do on your own or as a foundational study in order for you to learn better how to share your faith. So that's, that's very encouraging for me as a pastor, how we're going to share our faith. But I want to tell you right now, begin to build your bridges today. 
the bridges of serving others and loving others and caring about others and putting your Christian life on display, not just a matter of words, but a matter of deeds. This month, we're talking about taking ministry that is serving others in Jesus' name to the next level. Serving others will not become a lifestyle unless we have a compassionate heart. If you want the first point of the message, that's it. Serving others will not become for us a lifestyle unless we have a compassionate heart. Now, why is that important? Because as I look through the Gospels, what I see is that one of the attributes we see from Jesus over and over again is compassion. Let me share with you just just a few verses that help us to understand that. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 14, when Jesus landed and he saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. In Matthew 15, verse 32, we read, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have had nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 34, Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes and immediately they received their sight and followed him. Compassion. What does this word compassion mean? Well, It comes from two Latin words, suffer and with. Suffer and with. That's what compassion means, to suffer with people, to identify with them so fully that it hurts. I don't know if you're like me, but when the uh, TV shows come on or the, 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 the infomercials, the commercials that start by showing hurting, starving children with flies all around them, the first thing I want to do is to get a hold of the remote and change that channel as quickly as I can. I wonder sometimes whether that is a lack of compassion on my part. I don't want to see that hurt because if I see it, God might actually convict me that I need to do something about it. Compassion, to suffer with, to enter into another's pain. The actual Greek word means to be moved in one's bowels. That is not the same as a bowel movement. I know what was going through your mind. I'm sorry I had to say it, but it was there, right? In the the Greek way of thinking, the bowels were the depths. I mean, that was the depths of one's heart, the depths of one's spirit in the bowels. Now, they may not have been real good with anatomy, But they understood something that you and I understand, that pit of the stomach feeling, those butterflies in the stomach. There is a a physical reaction that we have deep within. And that's what that means. That deep within, our body responds to the hurts and the pains of another, to be affected deeply within by love and concern for that person. Jesus was motivated by compassion. He didn't act on behalf of people simply out of a sense of duty or obligation. He was moved with a heart of compassion. One of the verses that we read earlier, it talks about Jesus having compassion. It took place just after John the Baptist was beheaded. Now, John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. I don't know if you knew that or not. 
That was Jesus' cousin. He was family. But he was also the forerunner. He was the guy who baptized Jesus. He was the one who went out ahead and proclaimed Jesus. He was the one who said of Jesus, he must become greater and I'm content with becoming less. When John the Baptist was beheaded, you can imagine that the humanity of Jesus, his heart was broken. Even though he knew it was the plan of the Father, even though he knew where it was going, his heart was broken over this personal loss that he faced. And Jesus wanted to get away with his disciples for a time. And so they got in their boat and they sailed away. But the crowds, they didn't let them get away so quickly. And as Jesus prepared to land on the other side, Guess who was there waiting for him? The crowds. Heal me, Jesus. Touch my baby, Jesus. Jesus, here's my older parent. And as Jesus landed, looking for a little peace and quiet, a time to get away with him, just just he and the Father and his disciples. He looked out on this mass of people, even with his broken heart. And the Bible says that he had compassion on them. And he went among them and healed them. We see a compassionate Jesus. A man with a compassionate heart. Who genuinely loved people. And when I say people, I'm talking about messed up. Dirty, sinful, irreligious people. He loved them. He loved them deeply. He had compassion on them. He was so approachable that Jesus was accused by the religious leaders of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. May it be said of us all. One of the sad things that happens in the life of the church and perhaps one of the reasons that our culture finds that the church has become irrelevant is as we become a believer and begin to associate with believers and begin to develop relationships with believers, all good things, we have less and less and less contact with those who aren't believers to those who are outside the walls of the church. And therefore, those who look in on us see a social club, a gathering of good people. That's not who we are. We're a gathering of people who are dead and are now alive, of people who are lost and are now found. We're a gathering of a people who are here to worship, to encourage, but also to be equipped so we can go back and engage that world. Now, if there were anyone who could have separated himself from the crowds, it would have been Jesus. Think about it. He was holy. (laughs) They weren't. He was pure. They were dirty. He was righteous. They were covered with sin. And yet we find Jesus wading into the masses of sinful, hurting, broken humanity with compassion in his eyes, with love in his heart, rolling up his sleeves and touching the least of these. 
That's where we find Jesus. Where should we find Jesus' people? In other words, do we reflect the compassion of Christ to a lost world? If not, is there any wonder that our culture might find the church irrelevant? Mahatma Gandhi, one of the most respected leaders of modern history, was a Hindu. Gandhi nevertheless admired Jesus, particularly the Sermon on the Mount. Christian missionary E. Stanley Jones met with Gandhi and he asked him, he said, Mr. Gandhi, though you quote the words of Christ often, why is it that you appear so adamantly to reject becoming his follower? Gandhi replied this, oh, I don't reject your Christ. I love your Christ. It's just that so many of you Christians are so unlike your Christ. Apparently, Gandhi's rejection of Christianity grew from an incident that happened when he was a young lawyer in South Africa. Gandhi had been studying Jesus and had been studying the Christian church and and Christianity in general and He decided one day he was going to go and to visit a church. And so he he went to a church service one Sunday morning, and there he was met by a white South African elder who barred his way at the door with the question, Where do you think you're going, Kaffir? Now, Kaffir doesn't mean much to you or me, and please forgive me, I mean nothing insensitive but it would be the equivalent of saying, where do you think you're going, nigger? That's exactly what he said as he barred the door. And Gandhi said, I would like to attend worship here. And this elder said, there's no room for Kaffirs in this church. Get out of here. I'll have one of my assistants throw you down the steps. Can you imagine if instead of rejecting this man, The doors had been flung open. And he had gone in and he had found there not only the message of Christ being preached, but the gospel of Christ being lived. That this man who influenced the nation of India might have influenced him for Jesus Christ. Gandhi said from that moment on, he would never, ever consider Christianity in the church again. If we're going to serve others, we're going to have to do it with a compassionate heart. It requires a compassionate heart, and I pray that God will change our hearts. The second major point of this message is this. Genuine compassion leads to sacrificial service. You see how they're entwined together? To serve others requires a compassionate heart, and a compassionate heart sends us out to serve sacrificially. We saw this example exemplified in Jesus himself. Jesus, who was compassion incarnate, as Jesus viewed the very ones who would reject him, he said, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to serve, he came to sacrifice, and he did just that. Compassion, you see, is more than pity. It is more than a theoretical desire. When we have genuine compassion for people, we're moved to respond 
We enter into the suffering and we share their pain, but we also share their burden and attempt to alleviate it. It's often messy, heartbreaking, and quite frankly, time-consuming. It's far easier to set up shop, to open the doors and yell, come and get it, and then wonder why so few do. Now, quite frankly, this tactic worked for a while. During the baby boomer era, all you had to do was to build a church building in an area where a subdivision was going up, offer some children and youth programs, and bam, people were there. It worked great for a while. The church growth movement popped up. New churches began to be built. People began to filter in. And we thought we had this thing all figured out. But it's not working now. You can build those church buildings near subdivisions and all that happens is people who are members in another church now transfer over. Because your programs are better. Your music's better. Your preaching's better. I think I'll come here for a while. We don't need to go back and try to recapture what worked back in a baby boomer era. That time has passed away. We live in an increasingly secular society that if it is heard of Jesus at all, it didn't particularly care to know much about him. A church, a society in which the church is considered to be irrelevant. I want to tell you, we don't need to go back to the 1960s and 70s. We need to go back much further than that to recapture an ancient faith. We need to recapture that ancient faith with its depth of compassion and its willingness to pay the price to touch lives and to change eternities. I love history. If you go into my office, you'll see there are history books there. Some of it's American colonial history. But if you will go behind the door into the room that is my study. There are other books there that are church history books. Most people wouldn't know the names in them, and there'd be some strange and odd things that you'd read about. But in reading through church history, one of the things that became glaringly apparent is that the early church didn't just talk Jesus, they lived Jesus. And if you'll bear with me this morning, I would like to just touch on two or three of these. Tertullian, who was a writer from the second century, gives an insight to the hearts of believers. He reported that the Romans would exclaim about Christians, see how they love one another. What a reputation to have. See how they love one another. It's not see how big their building is. See how good their music is. See how good their preaching is. See how wonderful their children's programs are. See how great their, their, their youth programs are. Instead, when the people of Rome saw believers, they said, wow, look how they love each other. Justin Martyr, another Christian leader from about the same era in the, in the second century, gives us another glimpse into Christian life. He writes, 
We who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who has needs. We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. But now, because of Christ, we live together with such people. And we pray for our enemies. See how they love one another. Another early church leader, Clement of Alexandria, described the person who has come to know God. He says, he impoverished himself out of love so that he is certain he may never overlook a brother in need, especially if he knows he can bear poverty better than his brother. He likewise considers the pain of another as his own pain. And if he suffers any hardship because of having given out of his own poverty, he does not complain. It is reported in history that when a devastating plague swept throughout the ancient world, Christians were the only ones who took care of those affected by the plague. In fact, families would actually put their children, their parents, their grandparents out on the street when they became infected because they were afraid they might get it too. And yet Christians went and gathered up these people and at risk of their own lives and well-being cared for those with the plague. It is that compassion that we need. It is that compassion that will show the world that what we talk about is real. It is that compassion that will allow us to love one another in spite of our differences and to love the world in spite of its brokenness. Without that compassion, I am convinced that the church will increasingly become irrelevant in the eyes of the unchurched. With that compassion, I am convinced that the church will once again glow brightly in the midst of darkness. Now, it is up to the Holy Spirit to draw people to Christ. That's the Holy Spirit's work. But it's us to, up to us to carry the name of Christ into a world that's seemingly indifferent to Him and his church. But if we're going to be faithful to that task, folks, we've got to build bridges of compassion into the lives of people. If we do that, we'll show the world that Jesus is real. We'll show the world that the church is relevant. And we'll show those people that there is a life beyond anything that they ever dared to imagine.